Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Today's text is going to come from Genesis 3, and we start looking at verse 1 when Satan comes to Eve with a question. So looking at how the serpent tempts Eve to take the fruit, he starts off saying, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He starts off by subtly questioning God's word. The effect is that it makes God's word seem negotiable, creates a little bit of wiggle room, and that is the first step to, into temptation. Did God really say that we have to surrender everything, that I can't pursue my career and live a more comfortable life, for example? And then the serpent says something that God never said. Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is a lie because as we saw in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God actually said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God actually gave them every tree in the garden to eat except that one. However, by twisting God's word, Satan casts doubt on his character, portraying God as a stingy, restrictive God who doesn't want to give them good things. Then the woman responds, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She adds the words, neither shall you touch it, even though God never said that. What she's doing is subtly creating some wiggle room, making God's clear command not so clear in her mind. And this is often the first step to temptation, making God's word that's clear seem fuzzy, making some room for interpretation so that it's easier to justify what we want to do. In the end, what is it that Eve really wanted? And what is it that we all want? Because I was thinking about the fact that Satan's offer is so tempting, even to us today. It was because in the end, the offer was to be like God. What's tragic is that in many ways, God has actually given us so much. We are, of all the creation, the only ones to be made in His image. He also talks to us, has a relationship with us, and gives us dominion over all of creation. We're tasked to be guardians, to take care of this creation that He has given to us. But there is one thing. It is true that God does in fact withhold from us. That is, the right to say, this is good and this is evil. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. It's the right to set up boundaries, like we talked about during MBS this past week. You know, the truth and reality is there is a tension because we really don't like boundaries. I think having boundaries or someone else telling us what we can and can't do, it grates at us, at our pride deep within. I think we can see this pretty clearly and pretty comically in our children. You tell them something like, hey, don't do that. Or, and then you see this moment of pause in their face when they consider, should I really listen to daddy or mommy in this situation? But I want to do that. I want to touch that toy. I don't want to share. I don't want to eat. I don't want to listen. I just want to do what I want to do. And then in these moments, you see these little calculations on their faces and then you see, oh my goodness, the choice to obey or not right there in my child's eyes, right in his face, because they can't really hide what they're thinking or feeling. You know, honestly, we're not all that different when it comes to deciding whether or not we're going to listen to God or not in our own lives as well. We want the right to determine right from wrong. And so I, think, I was thinking about um, one thing that was really sad is that when Adam and Eve take the fruit, their eyes are open, but it's not something wonderful where they become godlike and wise. But their eyes are opened only to their nakedness and inadequacy. They feel shame and guilt and start hiding. They were lied to. And this is how Satan lies to us, saying that when we go against God's ways, that God will, that life will be so wonderful. 
great things will happen to us and we are going to be like God. And yet the reality is that when we dethrone God as Lord and pursue our own desires, the result is guilt, shame, inadequacy, and pain. And so how does God respond? In verse 8, it says, God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It seems innocent, but we know from the conversation later that God already knows what they've done. It's God trying to find them. God takes the initiative. And then when they hide from God, uh, God calls the man and says, where are you? This picture of God that he elicits, that he goes into the garden, walks and tries to look for them, drawing out their responses when he in fact already knows what happened. It's like he's seemingly inviting them to come clean about what happened. Like a parent and child, what happened? What did you say? How come that you did that? You want to draw it out of your child to allow the truth to come out into reality. I found this description of what happened such an interesting picture of who God is. It's also how I've experienced God as well in my own life. Oftentimes it's God's word that comes to me and draws me out, invites me to really think about why did I do what I did? As I journal and reflect and consider how God would want me to act in a certain way, and I have to see once again that there's an area of my life that I need to confess and repent over. I realize that that's how God speaks to me. That's how God corrects me, by drawing it out, by allowing me to come clean about who I am. God certainly could have, and he would have had perfect justification to judge them very harshly in the situation. I said, don't do it, and you did it. Therefore, it's over for you. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't really act like that. Certainly, he does in fact punish them and judge them, but there's also such grace as well. They are not killed, but they are removed from Eden. So why are they driven out of Eden? For man to continue to live forever in Eden in his fallen state would not be good. Adam and Eve must be sent out. So looking at one aspect of brokenness that stems from the fall, one thing that we clearly see is the relationship between man and wife is uh, is damaged. In the ESV it says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. But there is a footnote in the text and other uh, other other versions of the Bible would say that it says, your desire shall be toward your husband. So the ESV commentary here further notes that the word desire is a very strong word in Hebrew, closely paralleling the incident where Cain is about to murder Abel and the Lord says to Cain, sin's desire is for you. In other words, there's mastery and control that sin wants to have. In other words, this is not a good word. Your desire for your husband means you desire to master and control him. And in turn, the husband's intent will be to rule over the wife. In other words, to dominate over her. This is the consequence of sin. Woman's desire to oppose her husband's leadership, to assert leadership over, over him and in that relationship. And then man's desire not to lead or to guard or to protect as was his duty, but rather to simply rule over his wife. This is a very tragic consequence. Yeah, so after the fall, the harmonious and complementary relationship between husband and wife that God intended was broken and damaged. And this is the root of so many conflicts in marriage. Uh, the husband is overly domineering and abandons his God-given role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife. Or the wife tries to take control over the marriage and opposes the husband's leadership. However, in Ephesians 5, we see a restored picture of marriage that is possible in Christ, where husbands and wives show love and respect for one another. This is not to say that it's easy, but certainly as we allow Christ to be the Lord over our lives once again, we establish the God-given relationships that he has for each one of us. In the end, there is ultimately grace. We see in verse 21, God provides garments of skins and clothes them. An innocent animal lost its life so that Adam and Eve would no longer be naked. 
clearly this is a foreshadowing of not just the sacrificial system that was set up later, but also Jesus, the innocent lamb who died on our behalf and clothes us in righteousness. What a beautiful picture of God and his grace and mercy in our lives. Hope you guys have a great day today. Bye-bye.